Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm David Cartledge. On today's show, Poch goes to PSG, but will it be a match made in Paris or London N17? Juventus go to Milan looking for three points, but they might settle for three goals. And Barcelona make a trip to the Basque region. So we're talking states of independence. Let's start with what was the talking point of last year. Uh, It's come to an end now. But last year we were asking the question, Andy, where will Poch go? Will he go to Madrid? Will he go to Manchester? Or will he go somewhere else? He's gone and gone somewhere else, hasn't he? (laughs) And I think it's almost... A temptation to say it was written in the stars because of the fact that uh, 17 and a half years ago um, was when he left Paris Saint-Germain as a player, having made a huge impression, having adapted culturally, ha- having learnt the language, having been captain of what was a very different club than we have to say, Dotton. Um, but I think, especially in a time like we're in at the moment, um, the, the, the fact that... Um, Pochettino is bringing back a bit of the old Paris is is, is quite important because um, for all the on-pitch successives of the Qatari era, that there was a sense for a while that there was something missing in the stadium. Even when they were getting Beyonce and Jay-Z and Leonardo DiCaprio to turn up for Champions League games, that they were missing uh, a little bit of the fire that there was at the Parc des Princes in the 90s. And the fact that Pochettino harks back to, I guess, um, a less elite era, um, but he he does connect, I think, to what Paris Ultras think is, is is part of the club. I think that's quite important. They invited the Ultras back a couple of years ago, and to bring that that sense of ambience, that sense of colour, that sense of passion to the to the club. So that's one way in which. Pochettino works. Of course, um, there's 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 the fact that um, that they wanted to bring a bit more of that heart. And interestingly, and um, I really want to get David's take on this. Actually, um, there's been a lot of talk in the French newspapers and in in on French TV shows that Paris Saint Germain want Pochettino to bring an identity, bring a style to the team and that's something of course that he did very successfully at Southampton that's something he did very successfully at Tottenham but the idea that Thomas Tuchel was responsible for Paris Saint-Germain having had this superstar culture I mean that's not really ideally the way he wanted things that's just the hand that he was dealt and clearly they're going to try and carry on in this current vein because the two um, big things in the, the the intray of Leonardo, the sporting director for 2021, are to uh, extend the contracts of Kylian Mbappe and Neymar, who will only have a year left at the end of this season. And that leaves you, A, with an imbalance of power because these guys are always going to be the shot callers on the team, and B, an imbalance in terms of the squad because when you've got so much money tied up in those and let's not even get to the bit about them considering signing Messi further down the line you can only really put smaller pieces next to them you know it makes it difficult to 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 balance the the team yeah and I think you know I think this is going to be I think this is ultimately why they they did bring Pochettino and what you've touched on I think they need to create a unit um, you know, and that identity falls into that. I think that they have become a club that is known for their individuals above the collective. And I think there's nothing more that nothing more than what Poch does is he brings an identity and that feeling of the collective to a club when he comes in. Now, whether he can transfer that identity to an elite club uh, as opposed to a club that are up and coming, you, you you look at his past jobs, Espanyol, Southampton, um, Spurs, of course, they were clubs that were having to punch above their weight. Um, they were, they thrived upon potentially upsetting the, the bigger clubs. 
So it'll be interesting to see whether he can transfer that uh, that siege mentality, that that rough mentality, that in the trenches mentality to a club like PSG with their with their superstars. But why why why? Because when we were playing uh, musical manager cheers last year, <laughs> <laughs> we. Well, we were, weren't we, for a while? Who was going to fit in where for a while? And when we were when we were trying to figure out who was going to go where, Max Allegri seemed to be a perfect fit for PSG. And if you want fire, if it's fire they want, Andy, surely Max Allegri's got it in uh, in blazes, hasn't he? Oh, there's no doubt about that, Don. But I think he's almost. To Juventus, which sounds weird for someone who was originally, when he took the job at Juventus, their what fifth or sixth choice for the job, and um, had, had been sacked from Milan, where he'd already won a title, so synonymous with them to a certain degree. But Allegri, certainly by the end of his tenure, even though he had plenty of um, tactical plans up his sleeve, the bottom line is that he'd become totally Juventus in the sense that the only thing that mattered to him was the result, not the style. The result wasn't just important. It was the only thing. And that, I think, not just for Paris Saint-Germain, but for a, a really every elite club in, in Europe now, that becomes a thing, I think, um, in terms of marketing yourself internationally, having a in this post-Pep Guardiola Barcelona world, you need a style that you can sell to the world. That's a huge part of the image, the on-pitch style. So, Has the decision not potentially been taken away from them, though, considering that um, I think you know this maybe goes to on, on Leonardo here from, from what I've understood and, and gathered. Leonardo's preference was always Allegri, but there's a lack of faith potentially in his work from the top with QSI. And, and they've wanted Poch for a while. And is, is that where it's ultimately come down to? A lack of faith in Leonardo and his decision-making, do you think? I think he's a compromise candidate, certainly, David. I, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I think the fact that we know Pochettino speaks excellent French counts as, as well, and a lot of his staff do. I mean, even his son, Sebastiano, who um, is, is going to have a key role, actually, the, the 25-year-old, because he is going to be um, the, the, the fitness trainer of the team. Yeah. And um, he studied in France. He did a degree in France. So that level of communication is so important. And I think what's so important about it, as, as well as him being able to make his ideas understood from the get-go, is the fact that it means everyone's on the same page and we're moving away from there being factions in the dressing room. Although if you do think there are groups in the dressing room, the fact is Pochettino immediately has an in with the Spanish-speaking South American part of the dressing room as well. So I, I think it is um, a personnel as well as a tactical choice. But what we saw on his debut at St Etienne on, on, on Wednesday night is that, that there's work to do. I mean, they, they look really quite disjointed. Um, St Etienne do raise their game for the bigger teams, even though they're firmly entrenched in the bottom half of the table and, and, and they've got a few injuries at the moment. But that sense of... Paris having so much money, but making do and mend. I think that was that was pretty clear in this game because it's something that had been built up to through the training sessions of of, of PSG going into this game. The idea that Marco Verratti would um, play further up the pitch to sort of fill this creative void because they have too many midfield players really who, who are just completely the same who don't really offer anything different it's physique and shuttling and tackling if you look at Danilo if you look at Paredes if you look at Ander Herrera um, I think there's, there's there's a couple of interesting things around this because firstly Verratti being a bit further up maybe makes you lack a little bit of composure in, in front of the defence. And I know I'm talking about Marco Verratti and composure, but he has got an extraordinary range of passing. And then you're relying on a guy who has problems disciplinary-wise and in terms of staying fit. And the last, and I think possibly most important point, is the fact that so much of whether P P PSG sink or swim counts on whether Neymar's happy. Now, Neymar is always the best when he finds that 
kind of number 10 spot. So what does Pochettino have up his sleeve for him once he comes back? And it has to be said, I don't think they're particularly rushing him back in Ligue 1 because even though they're only, well, they've risen to second place after Lille lost um, uh, home to Angers with that point. I think the real sense is they're taking absolutely no risks with Neymar in particular and this ankle injury before the Champions League tie against Barcelona. You see, I don't know, David, if you want, if you want to ask uh, Andy the obvious question with regards to Neymar and Pochettino, or you'd like me to ask it. Um, please, you go ahead. Really? <laughs> yeah, really? yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. because Andy's gone on about how Pochettino's link with the Spanish contingent at PSG is, but you've got to ask, what's his Portuguese like? Surely. <laughs> Neymar's an excellent Spanish speaker, so that's yeah. fine. <laughs> and that's well, that's that's part of the, the basis of his friendship with with all those all those guys. That, that's like saying, you know, I speak perfect Swedish, so therefore the 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 Danes on the team will be able to understand me, and I'll be able to understand them. But anyway, yeah, to a certain extent, I suppose you're right. Uh, Don, how- in the OTC dressing room, you and Lars are definitely the Scandinavian contingent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah this is true and he's he's large to me but large to everybody else yeah that's the scandinavian contingent okay a word about thomas tuchel though um or tuchel what, what will his legacy be now and, and where, where would he go um i think he can look back quite fondly on his time at PSG and what it was, I, I realised it became quite toxic towards the end if you look at how aggressive he was um, abrasive he was in his press conferences and such and of course there was that interview which obviously contributed to his downfall in the end but I think he did well for the most part but ultimately he didn't bring them the Champions League that is the thing that PSG want above everything else they want to be taken seriously still on that elite Champions League level. Um, he didn't do that, so he is going to be seen as a failure somewhat um, in that sense. He got them to a final, though, David. He, he got did, them to a final. He did, he did, and, and credit to him for doing it, but he didn't win it. It's all well and good, but like you know, I don't think people will remember it to the sense, oh, he got us to a final. It'll just be the fact that, oh, he, he you know, I think they'll remember the sour moments more than that. I think if he'd won the Champions League and then gone out like this, people would have said, oh, he did get us the Champions League after all, but he didn't. David, will people remember him sitting on that box? I think that's probably what they'll <laughs> remember the most. Sort uh, of second-class Bielsa sat on his esky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Second-class Bielsa, overthinking literally everything. <laughs> And you don't win the Champions League at your first attempt, do you, ever, Andy? You don't. It's it's, it's tricky. There's no doubt about that. But I, I think um, I, I don't want to be one of the – there's an asterisk against it crowd because it's this year. But I, th- I think the, the format change and actually playing behind closed doors, certainly in the second leg of that last 16 game against Dortmund – really helped them. It helped to remove a lot of the pressure. It helped them get on with it and um, produce a really professional clinical performance, much as they went on to reproduce against uh, Leipzig in the in the semi-final. I would stop r- rather short of saying that like losing in the final was a failure. I understand every time a, a team like Paris Saint-Germain or a club like Paris Saint-Germain loses a match that it's a failure to some extent. But the way they went down against Bayern, I'm not convinced they could have done much more in that final. I think when you're looking for Tuchel going forward, though, it's got to be about his future job prospects and where would he pick? Because it it was interesting. When he first arrived at Paris Saint-Germain, a lot of German um, followers of uh, the Bundesliga and particularly close followers of Borussia Dortmund were shocked at these reports coming back from France of this conciliatory gentleman who knew how perfectly how to get on with all the big stars there and was, you know, almost a family member for Neymar after a, after a few weeks. And everyone in Germany was thinking, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And we just wondered when it would come and who the fallout would be with. Now, there are a few to and fro's with the players, but really, I think his spell at Paris Saint-Germain will be um, really always remembered for, especially the end of it, his, his, his terrible relationship with Leonardo, where they're almost in 
in in open public warfare. It was it, it was something quite extraordinary. And I think if you're looking to employ Thomas Tuchel going forward, whether you're in an elite club or a slightly below elite club or or whatever the level of club you are, you've got to ask, you know, what sort of consternation is he going to cause behind the scenes? Who is he going to upset? Because sooner or later. That is what he's going to do because that's what he always does. And for him, I think about a week before he was fired and, yeah, you know, if anyone was going to get fired on Christmas Eve, it was always going to be him. The, the, the fact that he came out and said, you know what, the problem with Paris Saint-Germain, it's just too political. There's too much politics going on at this club. <laughs> it's like, well, you're saying that now. You're saying that now? <laughs> Extraordinary. Okay, just one final, final point on this, David. Um it does seem as if the French League, Ligue 1, uh, is going to struggle this year because of the financial hole in their bucket due to the loss of this you know, over-lucrative television deal. And although there are instances of clubs uh, from leagues that aren't the top leagues in Europe winning the Champions League, th- those instances get less and less... Um, less and less frequent, don't they? I, I just wonder whether the Pochettino has gone to PSG. PSG has got loads and loads of money, but they're still playing within a league that's going to struggle, or many of the clubs are going to struggle financially. Whether Poch is going to PSG at very much the wrong time, the time when he is less likely to win the Champions League. Yeah, it is. It's a difficult one. I think PSG will probably bypass any situation like that. I think, you know, I think and see other teams potentially being picked off um, for their stars and such and, and the calibre of the league maybe taking another hit. Um, but I think PSG would bypass any problem concerning the money that they bring in, the marketing um, clout that they have. So I think he's gone to P. I I think PSG are going to be fine in it. But yeah, you know, I think it'll be levelled at him sooner rather than later. You know, if he does win that first league title, you know, it will be levelled straight away that, you know, Pochettino's gone there for a, an easy trophy potentially. If you want to say at this point that it's Memphis's title, I'm not going to stop you. Um, I, I would love that nothing. <laughs> 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 possibilité oui peut-être là avec ce mauvais dégagement de Kurzawa fait tirer le ballon à 30 mètres Nabil fait tirer à 30 mètres Benfis à l'entrée de son base de réparation le néerlandais qui va vouloir frapper lui-même Benfis So let's talk about Milan and Juventus um Juventus the champions obviously not on their best form going up to Milan Whew. it was it looks as if it was going to be a difficult one, but it ended up being <laughs> somewhat rudimentary for Juventus. What did you think, Andy? Well, firstly, Dalton, what a brilliant game to start the year. Um, and I know, obviously, we'd, we'd had a round of Serie A already, um, but I, I thought it was an absolutely fantastic match. And there's a little bit of trepidation on, on, on my side before, because as you say, um, Milan... 10 points clear at kickoff and you know you think with an opportunity to really cut Juventus away firstly I don't know how much is a big enough point cushion to cut Juventus away given that they're Juventus but um, I I had a, a, a bit of concern because you look at the way that Milan's squad was stretched before the game of course they had that extra coronas coronavirus outbreak which um um, made sure they were shorn of Ante Rebic. Already no Sandro Tonali, who was sent off at Benevento at the weekend. No Ibrahimovic, as we know. No uh, Ben Asser. Um, and the, the fact that they ended up having to play Calabria, for example, in, in, in midfield. And David Calabria turned out to be a key figure in this, actually, because at that moment when in the first half he popped up and, and scored that equaliser from a position that he never would have been in, if it had been normally at right back, there was a little part of you that thought it's written in the stars. It's written in the stars that the Milan are going to come out of this, this smiling. But I think you look at Juventus here and I think we're in a situation or we're in a, we're in a world really as, as, as football 
enjoyers, lovers, consumers, where we so often look at the coach. And it's, it's so easy to look at the coach with Juventus because obviously he's an iconic player. We presume that we know his um, coaching philosophy because he had such a clear philosophy as a player already. And I think it's easy to look at this and say, this is a huge win for, for Pirlo. And especially as, for example, um, the, the fact that um, Federico Chiesa, whose dad, as Nicky Bandini pointed out, Enrico always made a point of getting after Milan. So it very much runs in the family, his, his two goals. And when we were talking about it afterwards, uh, when we were talking about it earlier, Dot, and you were pointing out what a, what a fantastic first goal in particular it was. Um, uh, the, the, the fact that he, Pirlo used Chiesa on the right to stop Teo Hernandez breaking forward and really put him into his uncomfortable place, which is defending, which he's been able to gloss over by his brilliant attacking contributions so far this season. That was a great PLO move. But really, I think when you look at the goals, beautifully constructed and scored by Chiesa for the first two, and then when he had to go off and Kuluzewski who's who's been really one of the high points of Juventus' season so far, coming on and setting up the third goal, the clincher for for Weston McKennie, who I don't think a lot of Bundesliga watchers would have assumed would be... Well, they wouldn't have assumed he'd play at at Juventus, let alone be a big hit. The fact is, there's been a lot of criticism, a lot of scrutiny over Juventus' transfer dealings because it does look as if the squad is a little bit unbalanced. We've been a little bit concerned... A, with the manner of Pirlo's appointment, B, with the way that their dealings have worked post-Cristiano Ronaldo because everything has to work to his timetable. But then you look at the signings of the summer and how they impacted directly on those three goals. And David, it's, it's a huge win, not just for the team, actually, but for the club and the way they run. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look, I think both sides did have players missing, but... The key thing here is that Juve have much, much better depth. Um, and yeah. I think in terms of a squad, are further along um, in how they are. Yes, the manager may be, um, you know, progressing and, and working, you know, day to day, as it were, to to get his experience, to, to learn new things. Yes, but I think if you look at the squad, then, you know, he's still got a good experience core there. And I think that stood out above anything. Um, I've always thought Juve are better when they press the opposition and and and, and use that some initiative, I think. Use the initiative. They, they've wanted to go into a game and control. I think here, for a moment, it did look like it was getting away from them, but they soon asserted, them, they soon asserted themselves into the game and they controlled and they managed to see it out. Um, not for Milan's, you know, excellent effort. But I think this is def- definitely a marker game, even despite Milan's absences. For Juve can look at, Pirlo can look at, um, you know, and, and, and say, look, this is where we, we, can, we can beat the best teams in this league because I think Milan have, have been outstanding and I think you could even say they're ahead in their own development by maybe a year or two um, so things are looking good for them in terms of what they do next they can be confident but yeah I think this they're is certainly, they're certainly ahead in the league yeah I, I, that's what I mean absolutely yeah they're ahead in the league and I think they're they're also they probably didn't expect to be where they are right now and that's why they they can't obviously it's hard to take it's against Juve but I think they can't look too much, with too much regret on this game, uh, Milan. I think they, they gave a good account of themselves. And and like Andy said, they were missing several players in Benesse, Zlatan, Rebic. And I think they could have been a lot different had they played. Of course, Chiesa is going to get applauded. And why not? He, he scored a brace of goals and they were really good goals. But you've got to give props to Dybala. Um, for one thing, this has been a week across the continent of of in- impressive back flicks, yeah? <laughs> back foot Agreed. flicks Agreed. and and we'll we'll find out which was the best one uh, <laughs> perhaps during the course of this program but um i wonder whether though that milan didn't because dibala tried a back flick before the first goal he tried a back flick before in that same penalty area in exactly the same position and milan managed to get away with that one with a little bit of luck whereas the second one it was like you know, they didn't learn from the from the warning of the first one. They were, to a certain extent, Andy, uh, makers of their own undoing. 
Maybe, Dotton. I, I don't think that's unreasonable, but I think we have to go back to the resources that were available to them. And th- th- there was always a little sense, and, and David touched on it with um, both the absences and the differences in the bench between the, the, the two teams. It was very much in the words of Jay-Z, uh, bringing a knife to a gunfight. And it, it, it was tough for Milan. What really impressed me, again, as David touched on, I, I thought was the fact that Milan started very strongly and they coped with the setbacks as well. Okay, they went on and they, they lost the game, but they're still top of the table, thankfully, because Inter always going to Inter, as they did at Sampdoria and, and Claudio Ranieri was very pleased with that earlier in the day. Um I think Milan have shown that in this game, despite losing, despite a sense that people will think straight away, well, this is Juventus where it all starts. This is where they're going to reel them in. I think Milan showed even diminished, even inexperienced, that you know we're we're up for this. We're not shying away from the fact that we're we're trying to to maintain this place at the top of the table. And you know what? If they end up finishing third or fourth. That would still be a great season for them. Yeah. I know it might not seem that now um, because they're, they're top of the table and it feels like they've got something to lose. But to lose their first game of the season in Serie A, 16 games in, it's an astonishing achievement. And there's, I'm, I'm going to go against my own words and say there's a huge amount of credit to Pioli, also to Ibrahimovic, not just for what he's done on the pitch, but off it. You look at the way he's raised standards. And... Those players have shown how much they've grown by continuing without Zlatan, haven't they, David? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and also I just want to credit the work behind the scenes as well to bring in the right type of player. I think if you look at the turnover of players at Milan over the years, um, it's been astounding. You sometimes it's, They're in that situation where you sometimes forget that a player actually was there because they go through that many players. But now they look like they've definitely got that unity there uh, in terms of this core. And I think they might have looked ahead to this summer at the start of this current season and said, oh, we're going to need a lot more players again to keep developing. But you look at it, it's just minor tweaks. I think they're in such a great place in terms of their development that they can take encouragement um, of, of where they are right now as a squad. And and I think Pioli's probably shut up a lot of people as well. And like you, like you yeah. rightly say, I, I think a lot of people were against him coming into this job or against him, you know, his methods and what he was doing. But if you look now where the squad is, they are very much behind him. And to, and to put out this sort of performance when you are that depleted is is massive. Um, and they should be, like I said, again, they should be extremely encouraged by this performance. Yeah, and I think what we've seen from the, this, this early little resumption of, of, of Serie A is... It would just be wonderful if we had a genuine title race. I think it's very easy to feel a sense of impending doom for the neutral or the, the non-Juventus fan when they, they win a game like this. Um, but I think, if anything, this underlined this game, how much Juventus are entering a state of transition as well maybe because the thing that I found absolutely remarkable is not just as I said earlier that it was a a vindication of the work that the club have done behind the scenes when you saw um, Chiesa and um, McKenney and Kulusevsky having key roles particularly in the goals Cristiano Ronaldo was kind of invisible for this game and you know I think we've reached that point with Ronaldo when we know that when he's not scoring, he doesn't really do anything. He's become that player now, and that's fine because he's still the best penalty box player in the world. But I think it's remarkable to think that all of a sudden Juventus have reached this point, sort of like Portugal are reaching, where they're not entirely reliant on such a titan. Yeah, I think if you look at it, um, you know, that, that's the problem here with Ronaldo is that, you know, he, he does still produce for you but it needs to get to that point in your transition as a club or as a nation like you pointed out with Portugal what is the right level to move on with because you can't completely outcast him freeze him out or change the style but you kind of need to work with him to the extent that he isn't you know the focal point anymore that he is and and find that right role for him and that can be harder in a way than to, to build a team around somebody 
um, to because you still need him to impact, even if he is playing not such a significant role. Um, and, and I think, especially in the case of Portugal, they're in a wonderful position that they have such a an incredible amount of talent coming through that they can try different things with him. They can go different ways here um, with different styles of players, different attributes that they have. Um, and with Juve, it's an interesting one because they perhaps don't have the number of players on their books to, to be able to do that right now and to start that. And that's going to be something a bit more long-term for them. But I think Portugal probably have an advantage when it comes to replacing Ronaldo in that they have that depth of player. And that is all good and well, David, but are you going to let Andy get away with it? What's that? Well, he was quoting Jay-Z <laughs> and I was waiting for your rap quote. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's saving that for, uh, for for when we get to a bit of La Liga, Dotton. <laughs> oh, man. And, and, and Biggie had the perfect response. And it was, this ain't back in the day, you know. You know, things done changed. <laughs> and he, he, even for Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, he used to thump, but now he blasts, right? <laughs> in a footballing sense, at least. And if you don't know, now you know. Oh. David, so Barcelona go up uh, to the Basque region to face Athletic Bilbao, and there was a lot riding on this game for Barcelona, for Ronald Koeman, their coach, and arguably for Lionel Messi as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of those big games um, for Athlete- uh, for Barcelona. Sorry, when they were coming in, and they feel in the pressure now because they're they're chasing, obviously, and and they still believe that the the title is alive. Something we'll get to, onto in a minute. I'm I'm, I'm assuming. Um, and, <laughs> and the thing is that they came into this game again under a lot of pressure it's it's always always difficult to go to San Mamets even without any fans there I think it's such a difficult place to go um, but I think they put in a very very good performance and I think there are potentially signs of progress with Koeman and Barcelona, I think when you look at a performance like this and the adversity they were potentially facing um, against this athletic side who who had a new coach and, um, of course, who took an early lead. And I I guess we'll come to um, Messi and probably his best performance of the season and the Barcelona bits in a minute, David. But I I wanted to ask really about the the change at Athletic because when you talked Mm. about this being fought with danger for Barcelona... Part of the feeling I had before kickoff that Athletic could maybe get one over on them was the fact that Athletic had been to Gais Cagaritano almost directly after they beat Elche at the weekend on, on, on Sunday, replaced him with Marcelino. Now, I mean, a lot of people will probably look at this on face value and say sacking Garitano when they're <laughs> halfway up the table and they're just one is maybe a little harsh. I mean, this had been, firstly, this has been coming for a while, hadn't it? And maybe the really poor performance in the Basque derby against Real Sociedad was, was the final straw in that. Maybe it was to do with the ability of Marcelino because for me, this game showed a bit like Pochettino going back to the beginning, the, the work that Marcelino has to do because there were little signs of his him getting his print on the team, even though he's only had a couple of days. So they were quite well organised in two banks of four, especially in the first half. But then, excellent as Barcelona were in in spells, Athletic defended like you can't against anyone, let alone Barcelona. Yeah, absolutely. They, they looked like a team. They'd only had two training sessions with Marcelino. Um, that was very evident. I think they started off with a bluster, with a, with a, uh, I think with a, a really, really positive, exciting vibe of something new. Uh, Marcelino um, plays a particular style that everybody knows, his four four two, that asks for very, very quick transitions. I think he's got somebody in, in Aki Williams who can do that, and um, so it was understandable that he kind of set the, you know, the Marcelino era off. I think in in, in a way, um, but as the game went on you saw one team that, despite their flaws, do have an idea of the, of the style that they play and, and, and a togetherness of sort, a familiarity with who they're playing with. 
Um, and then you saw the other side kind of, you know, have to be figuring out things on the job because of those two training sessions. And I think that is where Barcelona came into it and began to control later on. Um, but positive start, I think, for Athletic, no matter what. Um, I think, yeah, unfortunate they lost, of course, to start off the era uh, under Marcelino. But I think positive signs straight away. And now the real hard work kicks in for them. Why is Bilbao uh, a difficult place to play at, even when there are no fans? Why is it a difficult stadium to play at? It's just going up there, going to the north, especially this time of year as well, extremely cold. Um, and Bilbao is just so, so di- Obviously, in the Basque country, it's so, so different to the rest of Spain and, and the culture that they have there. And, of course, they're a very, very physical side. No matter what coach they have, they have got some tough players there. Raul Garcia is still there, probably is the biggest shithouse to walk uh, the field of Spain. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure Diego Costa would have something to say about that, but no, I think Raul Garcia is even more of a <laughs> a wild case than Costa, um, would you believe? Um, so yeah, as long as somebody like he, you know, he's still around, um, they, you're always going to get, you know, lumps kicked out when you face there. So nobody wants to go and face uh, athletic still, no matter what situation they're in, whether they're down on form or they're in form, nobody wants to face them. So that's why it's a little bit difficult. And especially Barcelona have looked a tad soft at times. And you look at some of the games that they have lost and drawn and, and teams that they have faced who have caused them problems. It has been those teams who are quite physical, who are tough, up and at them. And Athletic did start like that, but soon faded out. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think Marcelino is going to create a bit of a mentality there again, really, really f- you know, forcing the issue of becoming tough again. Um, I think that's what he does when he goes into clubs. It's a very us versus them sort of mentality um, that he creates in, in, in a mental capacity. But from a tactical point of view, he's also really, really smart as well. And I think we're going to see a quick improvement from Athletic. Yeah, uh, from the way you describe it, David, uh, Bilbao is... Well, the Basque region, it sounds like you're going to play an overseas fixture for the rest of Spain. And I do get the regionalism of it. I do get that. But I wonder whether um, it's not, it is, as as you point out, very different culturally, so different culturally that you may as well be playing a European fixture here. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 got those vibes about it, and um, like I say, I think even without the fans in the stadium, it still it still has a bit of an atmosphere about it. Going there, being in that stadium, being in that area, and again, the type of team that you will face, no matter what the coach is. Um, and like I say, hopefully, fans can come back soon because I think Marcelino is going to generate some exciting football, and it would be only right for those fans to be there. And then it'll be that would be the the boost I think that they get to maybe tip them over the line in terms of maybe making them a force that does challenge the top six in Spain again. I mean, it's the ultimate coaching test, really, isn't it? Even for someone as um, sure of their philosophy as Marcelino, David, because um, Dotton talked about it being almost like an overseas fixture in, in, in its way. The difficulty he faces is how do you... It, you're going to have to coach the current team because there's a limited amount that you can do in the transfer market, not just because of the current situation that we're in post-corona where no one's got any money. But just to remind everyone, they can't sign non-Basque players. And th- th- there's some players, I think, that he is really going to have to coach in that team. Now, we can talk about... And I, I know Sid Lowe talked about the exit of Adelith, which is still a thing. The fact that Raul Garcia, the aforementioned Raul Garcia is... Is still getting a, is getting a little bit old now, and mm-hmm. um, you know he plays in a very um, labour intensive way. So I'm I'm not sure how his game's going to age. It'll be interesting to see that. But when I look at players like Iñaki Williams, like uh, Ika Munyain, the captain, and actually the one I really wanted to underline is um, Inigo Martinez, the the defender, who yeah. I, I heard. Um, Unai Simon, their excellent goalkeeper, get a lot of stick for the first goal. For me, it's Iñaki who makes the mistake because he expects the ball to go out. He starts um, shouting that it has gone out when it's nowhere near gone out and the ball yeah. comes is, is not back by De Jong for, for Pedri, who I'm sure will come to in a minute to, to, to score. So you're talking about a defender who they, they bet the farm on. You know, It caused a lot of consternation in the Basque country when they bought him for the clause from Real Sociedad. And Marcelino's responsibility is to get him 
back to the standard that he should be at, as well as some of those others who've kind of been coasting a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the problem. When he begins to coast, he looks like a really, really bad defender because he is a good defender, but he does have those those lapses. Those He's very, very prone to switch off. And it, it was something that has probably kept him from getting a move to a bigger club. It's It's why somebody... It's why Laporte uh, went to the Premier League and why Inigo Martinez ended up staying in Spain and, and only went across um, from San Sebastian to Bilbao. Um, that's the difference there. Laporte didn't really have that about him, whereas Inigo does. And, and that's just such a great um, example, uh, what you bring up, uh, what his game is about. And I think Marcelino's got a lot of work front to back. I think he's got a very good goalkeeper there, uh, despite his errors last night. I think he, he, you know um, his failings last night. Um, I think he's got some good centre-backs to choose from as well. They're, they're not short on, on, on centre-backs. He, he was there with Unai, uh, Nunez last night, uh, Inigo Martinez, but they've also got Yerai as well. And, uh, you know, they've, they've always got players in the academy coming up. Um, so, yeah, he's somebody they're going to have to work with. And it's interesting that you actually touched on Raul Garcia um, in, in terms of the players that he's got in his squad. Because it's one of the things that has been levelled against Caritano is the fact that he hasn't staked enough on replacing Adaris with a with a like for like replacement basically in um, Via Libre, the um gigantic striker, uh, classic Basque striker. I think it went, when you when you look at him, you look at his style, um he, he could be Adarith's son. Um, you know, looking at the age difference as well, he might well be. Um but you know, you you'd look at it and I think Garitano was was very reluctant to to put. He brought some youngsters into the squad, but he never really gave them enough of a run in the team. You look at some of the players who have been frozen out. Unai Cordoba, for instance. Uh, uh, Cordoba, sorry. You know he he was going places, but you know he was soon um, stopped in his tracks by by Garitano, who, who went for this safety risk averse sort of style and approach. And it's ultimately what one of the things that cost him, amongst other things. I think Garitano his job was the inability to bring those young players through and show faith. Um, and when they did go in the team, they, they made mistakes because they didn't really feel a, you know, a lot of faith. They didn't feel a lot of confidence. Um, Garitano was very, I thought he was very abject, very dour in press conferences as well. Again, something would also irritate the hierarchy at Athletic Bilbao and something else which contributed to his uh, his departure. So the mentality has to, play, has to change as well in that sense because Marcelino has a job of lifting all these players up Blooding new players into the squad as well, and um, but I think ultimately creating a very very positive vibe about the place again. Whoa 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 whoa! Look, I've got to ride my horse to the old Bilbao Road, and I'm going to ride <laughs> until I can't no more. Because uh, Andy said in the middle of all of that, Andy said, as everybody knows, Bilbao can't sign non-Basque players. Well, I'm mm. sorry. I didn't know that. That doesn't sound very EEC to me or European Union or... Is it WTO rules, is that, that they're, that they're banking on uh, with regards to their discrimination of uh, non-Basque players? Well, the lines have become blurred, um, shall we say, in, in more recent years. You know, you look at the players that they assigned and they used to be a particular type of uh, of rule in terms of the heritage and just, just directly being born in the Basque country or family being Basque. But now you basically just need to have a grandparent or potentially have lived around the area sometime. And also, of course, they've stretched it to, you know, this is very disputed and I don't want to cause controversy here about Pamplona and the Navarre region. And they say who live there that they're not part of the Basque country, but Athletic have been picking players off because they say, oh, it is part of the Basque country. Back in the day, it's something that they probably wouldn't have included in, in their strict policy, but they've stretched it in that sense. Um, you look at somebody like Laporte as well. Uh, he came through the academy. He was somebody who was scouted in the, the French Basque region. Um, they also had Lisa Razou, the excellent French fullback back in the day who played, for, who played for France, of course. So the lines have become more skewed as the years have gone on, but not to the extent where they have disregarded the policy like Real Sociedad did when, when they, of course, uh, had their little... Uh, you know, likes of John Aldridge and such coming in. Well, of course, Messi's 100% Catalan for, for the moment, <laughs> at least. And um, <laughs> he, he had his, his, his game yeah. of the season. He was he was absolutely terrific um, in, in, in this game. Um, and it, it was just nice to see him 
like, like play with a bit of joy actually because he's looked bloody miserable for a lot of yeah. this season as well as being I, I was asked on BT Sport to compose a European team of the season a week or two ago and um, it was so easy to leave Messi out it was frightening and um, that, that's something that's absolutely remarkable I, I, I think but this was a little glimpse of old Messi and you know what no man is an island. We're going to go on to Alcarfunkel now. And no, that's Dennis Brown, actually. Is, is that right? Was it Dennis Brown? No man is an island. No man stands alone now. Anyway, uh, he can do it much better than me, obviously. <laughs> I, I think that's very modest of you, and I'm sure Dennis Brown would agree. <laughs> but I, I was going to say, I think the the, the interesting thing about this is that um, Messi can't do it all on his own. He's never been able to do it all on his own, even though it's appeared that way sometimes. And it was always about the environment of Barcelona. Now, maybe he hasn't got that environment yet again, and he's, he's been very clear on that in his criticisms of the club. But he has got a little glimmer of sunshine in Pedri. And we all like a glimmer of sunshine from the Canary Islands. He's special, isn't he, David? Not just that opening goal, but the way he helps set up. And Dotton talked about great back heels of um, the, the, the the midweek earlier. Um, the, the way he set up Messi for that second goal. All of a sudden, Messi has got a playmate, someone that is on his wavelength. And you can't really say that about too many of the current Barcelona players, can you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think Messi... You know, we would, would have enjoyed growing up, I think, in the Canary Islands and the the style of football that they profess there because it is very much street football. And I brought this up a few weeks ago. The only time I've seen joy on Messi's face is when he has created that link with Pedri. And it was, again, evident last night, the joy that is etched across Messi's face. I think the last time I saw him smile to that extent was probably with Neymar and then before that with uh, Ronaldinho. There's that sort of connection there. Now, look, I'm not saying Pedri is on their level right now. Of course he isn't. He's still very much on the come up. But you look at the influence that Pedri is having, it's remarkable that somebody so young could step into this team um, and, and influence like this already, purely through his brand of football just being so uninhibited um liberated um and joyous i think the way that he plays but again i go back to these canary island footballers they play in this way street football they t- they take what they learned um in the street in the streets of places uh, like santa cruz de tenerife like las palmas and and they bring it to the football field they they, they can't be too hung up tactically they they still need to express themselves and and if you look in the past Valeron, David Silva, you know, these players are very, very unique. From a physical point of view, uh, you look at them, there's barely anything on them. They're they're not physical, you know, beings. You know, they're not athletes. It's it's about the mind, basically, above anything. It's about the mind and and what goes on in there, your your speed of thought, um, your quickness of pass, and and your ideas that you bring to the field. And and that's what Pedri does. Again, you look at him, he isn't somebody who's going to, dominate games um, for 90 minutes using using his pure physical qualities. He's somebody who's just going to slip in one or two passes that completely change the course of the game. So, guys, uh, we started off this week's podcast by talking about Pochettino. Um, of course, his PSG met Saint-Étienne midweek, and then we rounded it off talking about... Uh, Lionel Messi and his Barcelona's journey uh, to the Basque region for athletic Bilbao. I wonder when you say Messi and Pochettino, you're thinking of a, a match made in Paris. Anyway, I don't know if either <laughs> of you have got. <laughs> I don't know if either of you have got any other matches made in heaven to recommend as your games of the week. Well, I, I, there, there, there are two really, Dotton. I mean, straight away, I, I want to go for the historic bit of Friday night fun between uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach and, and, and Bayern. Um, we want to see Bayern challenge more regularly. 
you might see it again because it's eight successive Bundesliga games that Bayern have gone behind in now. And they went 2-0 down to Mainz last weekend before coming back and, and walloping one of the worst sides in the league, 5-2. Um, but we never talk that much about Dutch football on, on here. And so I think it would be remiss of me not to talk about uh, Sunday afternoon, Ajax versus uh, PSV Eindhoven. I think this is going to be absolutely fascinating. And um, it's, it's something that, that you can watch on on UK TV as well. If you've got the live score app, you can watch it for, for, for nothing um, at 3.45 on Sunday afternoon UK time. And Ajax, I kind of thought after um, they got to the semifinals of the Champions League that this would be their chance to um, dominate for years to come with the extra cash they got. Of course, it's all the more difficult because you're constantly trying to stem an exodus. Uh, and, and that is hard. Um, they're a little bit disappointing in the Champions League again this season. Um, but still, despite the Quincy Promise controversy, they, they should be able to pull away and win the league. But PSV have got so many exciting attacking players this year, including, of course, one Mario Goetze. So I think this is going to be worth watching and there are going to be goals, which is always the kiss of death when you say that. Yeah, it sounds like a cracker nevertheless, though. And David, a match of the week for you? Yeah, sure. Um, Saturday, uh, 1pm, Sevilla versus Real Sociedad. That is sixth place in the Liga, Sevilla versus fourth place, Real Sociedad. Uh, both teams very much within a chance uh, you know, of, of Champions League football at the end of the season. I think this will be a game that goes a long way to see um, what level both are on. This is going to be a high-pressure, I think, encounter. Um, three losses in the last five for Real Sociedad, so they need to get back on it. And they've had a few injuries though, um, and you know this is a this is a game I think they can show that you know they they still have what it takes to finish in the Champions League places. Sevilla, meanwhile, um, they have three wins in their last five, and 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 they're looking good again. I think they've been a little bit inconsistent at times this season. They've never looked they haven't looked as as powerful um, as they did last season, but. I think something is coming back there with them. And I think this is going to be a really, really good game between two sides who are exciting to watch and also have lofty ambitions in the league. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.